This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, Eric Tonsmeyer shares some of his research on alley cropping from his forthcoming book on this subject, which he's writing in cooperation with Interlace Commons, an organization spreading the benefits and evidence of agroforestry, including alley cropping, with farmers. What quickly emerges in this conversation is how farmers can use alley cropping at scale to create regenerative on-farm systems that introduce perennial plants into the farmer's existing specialty, be that annual vegetable agriculture, grain production, or animal grazing. Permaculture practitioners can also use alley cropping as one of the tools in our toolkit of techniques and use this idea in smaller spaces and to expand the ways that we can create food forests. With Eric's background in perennials, edible plants, and carbon sequestration, Throughout the discussion, we circle back to these benefits in alley cropping systems and the vital need for trees, in addition to whatever else we might be growing, to get carbon out of the air and into the ground. Enjoy this time with Eric Tonsmeyer, and I'll join you again after. How does this work that you're doing now after exploring how we can get carbon out of the atmosphere and the impact of agriculture differ or expand on that work where most permaculture practitioners might have first encountered you? One of the insights from the carbon farming book that I worked on is that the more trees are present in a gardening or farming system, the more carbon they sequester. And an edible forest garden is one example of a kind of agroforestry that has a high density of woody plants and and a high amount of carbon sequestered in it as a result. A lot of this uh, last couple of years has been looking from the garden scale where I began really more at the farm scale and, and what does that look like. While I continue to have my own garden here, which I've been in 17 years now and is doing great. The sort of challenge of figuring out what these things look like at a farm scale has been what a lot of this last 10 years or so has been about for me. And when you speak to farm scale, I've been speaking lately about the urban and peri-urban spaces where permaculture and agriculture can take place on five acres or less to put more farms growing food for people where people live. When you're looking at these larger scales, what do you have in mind or what kind of acreage does this kind of transition to the farm scale when it comes to alley cropping? Or is this something that we can apply at every level? Well, there are alley cropping systems at a whole range of different scales from commercial ones from maybe one or two acres on up. So I very much think it's applicable in those urban places. And maybe I should break for a moment and talk about how we're defining alley cropping in this book that I'm working on, which is really when we think about tropical alley cropping, you've got rows of trees that are fixing nitrogen, and then you're growing annual crops in between them, usually like corn or something like that. Whereas in the U.S. and a lot of the sort of mechanized world, the trees are not primarily there for fertility but they are themselves a crop in some way for timber or for nuts or berries or something like that. So an example of a more intensive, smaller scale, you know, five acres or less kind of a system would be combining fruit trees with vegetables. And we see that on a pretty big scale in Europe. That is 
lots of small farms doing that in Europe. Or larger scale systems might be timber trees or, or nuts with cereal crops or something like that. So I do think there are small scale peri-urban models for sure. And that's where we see that a lot because maximizing productivity in a small space is one of the most important issues in urban agriculture. So it makes sense that this kind of agroforestry, which is really all about getting more out of a small amount of land, would be a good fit there. And actually, I did a presentation for NOFA New Jersey where we talked about it some. And I think those are, are really interesting kinds of systems. I mean, here in my own garden, I have annual beds interspersed with fruit trees and berries. So that's sort of a very informal kind of very tiny one-tenth of an acre sort of alley cropping system in a way. How does alley cropping differ from something like a food forest? Is this something that doesn't have as many layers as we might think of, the mycelial all the way up to the canopy? And because of those differences, is alley cropping designed to be easier to mechanize or does mechanization have nothing to do with the conversation? I think in general, you're right on all of those notes that it is generally simpler. It is generally designed for using equipment, whether that's, you know, rototiller or oxen or tractors or combines or what have you. And it's generally commercial and Often the companion crop, meaning what you're growing between the rows of trees, is an annual crop. So it's really about combining woody plants with annual crop production. Although there are people who do perennial companion crops, like my friend John O'Niger here in Western Mass has chestnuts as a chestnut operation. And in between, he's growing things like elderberries and aronia and things like that. So it can be a perennial growing in between the tree rows. But mostly it's trying to find a way to perennialize annual crop production by incorporating trees. And, and often they are in rows, whether those are on contour or something else, to try and get a little bit of the best of both worlds in there. And it's generally less diverse than a food forest. Although there are people who are doing quite a lot of complexity in the tree roads, like there's a farm called Murris Permaculture Haven in Denmark, who, ha who basically have strips of forest garden growing between their uh, annual crops. And we're seeing in France that a lot of producers are starting to mix in to diversify their tree rows, not only with different species of trees, but also adding in shrubs and other crops underneath. So I think there is often in the U.S. We, we think of alley cropping here as being like black walnuts and corn. And certainly that is one good model, but there's a lot of ways to do it. And some of them are quite a bit more intensive and diverse. Are there any guiding principles or rules of thumb when it comes to alley cropping and the way in which to develop those systems? Or is it as diverse as the individual farm implementing these ideas? It comes back to your goals. Like, do you want to continue to be able to grow the same annual crops all the way through the life of the trees? Or do you want to see that very gradually shift to shade? Or do you want to see it very quickly shift to shade? So that'd be one consideration. And then we're looking at some of the same kinds of factors we looked at with edible forest gardens, like how do you manage competition 
to maximize the benefits and the cooperation and minimize the competition and the bad impacts between them. And one thing I heard this time that I had never seen before is that one writer was saying that it's not as though we're adding competition to a field where none was happening in a wheat field or in a vegetable field. There's already competition. It's just between members of the same species. But every soybean plant in a field of soybeans is competing with every other soybean already. So our goal really is just to not make any more competition than there already is. And that's a a much more achievable goal, I think, in some ways. As we do in edible forest gardens, we look for the complementarity. So in in the Sahel region in Africa, there's this wonderful tree called the apple ring acacia, where the it's a nitrogen fixing tree. It's grown in annual crop fields, and the the tree leaves out in the dry season when you're not growing crops underneath. So it's not shading anything. It's not out competing anything for shade. And then the corn or cotton or peanuts or something is grown in this rainy season, and the tree doesn't have leaves at that time. So that's a beautiful example of complementarity where they're not using the same resource at the same time. And we do see some examples like this where in the Mediterranean regions of France, they're combining very successfully deciduous timber trees like walnuts or cherry, things like that, poplars that are leafed out in the summer with winter cereal grains like wheat that are grown in the winter. So they're in the same field, but they're not active at the same time of year. And something I've been learning as I've looked at different kinds of polyculture systems around the world over the last number of decades is that often that kind of seasonal complementarity is a really key thing to look for. And even here, if you're growing, let's say, you know, ramps or toothwort or other kinds of spring ephemerals in your food forest, they're going to be up and doing their thing when your trees haven't even leafed out yet. And by the time the trees are leafed out, they may kind of be done already for the year. That is the component of the sort of tempered edible forest garden. But I'm learning how much more of a a universal part of agroforestry and intercropping that is around the world. It's really fascinating to see that and to see that that's something that you can do on a big farm with tractors and combines and not just something you can do in your backyard. Although it does need to be much simpler and easier to manage at larger scale. So you, if you took my garden with 300 species on a tenth of an acre and tried to do that on 100 acres, you would need 10,000 laborers or something. It would be a nightmare. So there is a certain loss, I think, of some of the diversity and complexity and intensity as you get to a bigger scale. But you can still keep a lot more of it than a conventional monoculture farm. As you've walked us through this, I can see how you could use the zone analysis within permaculture to decide what you would like to plant and what you would grow based on that model, but then bring everything into a smaller space in order to alley crop and grow a larger number of calories for your family or for those smaller spaces where you might want to grow for market. This sounds like an interesting technique for permaculture practitioners to explore in order to apply our concepts in a different way that could meet different on-the-ground conditions depending on where we are. I sure think so. And I'm, I'm not ready to live a life without annuals. I'm as big an advocate for perennials as you're likely to find. 
but I like wheat quite a bit and we don't really have perennial wheat yet. And I like carrots and there's never going to be a perennial carrot. <laughs> and I like tomatoes and all those things and soybeans and stuff. So we need to find the best ways to grow those. And there is land that is, you know, flat, very fertile, prime farmland where growing annuals alone in a regenerative way is great. But that's no more than a third of the world's cropland. Most of the world's cropland is on a slope or it's on degradable land or in some other way, you know, less than ideal. And those are places where we want to add a perennial element as much as we can in order to rebuild soil and stabilize soil and capture carbon and improve water quality and reduce erosion and all of those kinds of things. And alley cropping is one really good way to to do that on those two-thirds of the world's cropland. And as long as we continue to need annuals, and I don't see that phasing out anytime real soon, or I see maybe we can perennialize agriculture more and more, but there, I don't see any scenario where there's zero annuals, right? Let's find the best way to do it that we can. And, and combining trees and shrubs with annuals is a good way to do that. If you have a good design where you're actually, you know, improving the overall productivity of the land and getting all the benefits without too much intense competition. And we do see a lot of amazing benefits, especially I've been looking at the projected impacts of climate change on agriculture and really around the world, the pattern we're seeing and that we're projecting more in the future is more intense rainfall. The more intense rainfall is the worse erosion gets when you have bare soil. So even in places where, let's say, cover crops alone have been enough until now, it may be that we really need to step up our game on, on erosion control and strips of trees with perennial grass or whatever underneath are a great way to do that. A really good way to do that. A very, very effective way to do that. There's an interview that I'll link to from way in the early days of the archives of the show when I interviewed Dr. Sweeney of the Stroud Water Research Institute. What he spoke to was what we need to do in order to build riparian buffers. And that was one of the questions that I had in the back of my head, as you were describing, alley cropping is because of the importance of protecting our waterways. One of the pieces that I've encountered over the years living in Pennsylvania for a long time was the concern about the total daily load, the total maximum daily load of runoff from agricultural land that would make it into the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. And there was a lot of policy and legislation around that. And riparian buffers would take care of more or less all of that. But the issue is how do you convince someone that this land that is very valuable to them should be taken out of the production that they currently use it for? And I think that something like alley cropping is a great example of how we can move agriculture in a direction that is more restorative without destroying the perceived livelihoods of the people who are working that land without sacrificing profitability. Yeah. And there are people working on productive riparian buffers as well that bring in some income. But this is, yeah, it's sort of another way to slice the same problem, if you will. And we've seen some great impacts on water quality from alley cropping. By the time the trees are 
let's see, I think this was at like 40 trees per acre, if I'm remembering right. By the time they're 15 or 20 feet high, their roots are going all the way under the field. Even if the rows are, you know, 70 or 80 feet apart, the trees' roots are underlying the entire field. They call it the safety net. And they capture all of these excess nutrients that otherwise would wash away and cause water quality problems or off gases, nitrous oxide, and cause climate change. Water quality and erosion control are two of the biggest ecosystem services that are provided by alley cropping. And it can do a, a number of other things too. It can help to restore mycorrhizae and damaged soils. It can help to provide habitat for pollinators and beneficial insects and wildlife and the list of things it can do are quite impressive. It can't do everything. And if you're still plowing in between a bunch, there are some inherent challenges that come along with that. But a lot of people are figuring out doing organic no-till and various other, we're working on the perennial grains like Kernza and stuff. So I think that's something that we're finding a number of different ways to do better. I will say that the one thing that the biggest challenge, I think, to adoption of alley cropping on a big scale in the United States is the widespread use of herbicides in this sort of no-till, conventional no-till approach where herbicide is sprayed multiple times a year from big boom sprayers on tractors or even applied from airplanes. It's impossible to establish trees in those fields because they're killed by the herbicide. And given that that is so much of U.S. farmland at this point, it's a pretty major cap on the potential adoption of, of alley cropping. It's really the organic folks, the regenerative folks, and the few commodities that people are growing that don't have Roundup Ready versions that are really the places where people can pick this up. And there is a little bit of carbon sequestration from that combination of cover crops and no-till and crop rotation, that sort of conservation agriculture package. And it, it definitely sequesters some carbon, but much lower than alley cropping. And unfortunately, it keeps you from being able to adopt alley cropping, at least in the way it's widely practiced here. So I don't know that this is going to be a huge thing that's going to sweep all U.S. farmland right away, but it is very, very powerful. And it, it has incredible benefits to the farm, to the the neighborhood around the farm and downstream from the farm. And I think it represents sort of a gold standard in annual crop production in some ways. And we are really seeing 10 years ago, I couldn't have maybe thought of anybody who was doing that kind of commercial agroforestry, except for a few really pioneering growers in Missouri. But now there's, there's agroforestry farms popping up all over the United States. There's quite a very, very exciting wave happening right now. And I'm uh, very happy and enthusiastic to see that that's, that's happening. And I think that's really new. That's what I was hoping to see when I got interested in permaculture and farming and, and all that. And I've seen lots and lots of it in the tropics, but very, very little here. And it's, it's very heartwarming to see it picking up like it is right now. Though I'm not someone who would advocate going out and drenching our entire lawn or farmland with any kind of chemical, I do know that there are times where these applications are helpful, and when it comes to bringing more conventional farmers in line with these ideas, would it help if more narrow-spectrum herbicides were used, and is it largely a result of this use of like Roundup and glyphosate? Yeah, it's really the broad-spectrum herbicides that are the problem. Lots and lots of alley cropping producers use herbicides 
all the time, including actually in the rows to control weeds under the trees and stuff, but they are more targeted chemicals and they're not spraying them all over the whole field multiple times a year. So there's plenty of herbicides that people out there can use that are compatible with them, but it's the sort of the broad spectrum ones and the very wide scale use of them that is really what is not compatible. And then what you said about the limits to carbon sequestration through like no-till agriculture and some of these other regenerative practices, is that just a result of the amount of biomass that comes from the trees that are grown in an alley crop situation? The general trend that I've seen is that the more trees are present in a system, the more carbon is sequestered. And that's not only true because there's carbon in the wood and roots of the trees, which does count and is a lot, but also it increases the um, soil carbon quite a bit as well. One reason is just the number of leaves that are dropped into the field every year. And the same thing is happening underground where root hairs are being shed in quite large numbers every year as well. So there's increased input of organic matter. So like I think about a farm I know near here, Food Bank Farm, where they invite all their neighbors to bring leaf bags from their lawn and drop them off on the farm, and then they compost them and spread it on the field. Well, basically, having trees in your field is the same thing. They're just dropping those leaves right there onto the ground, and then they become organic matter. So some of it is that. Some of it is that the tree roots are alive all year round, even when they're somewhat dormant in the winter. There's never a time when there isn't a living organism in the field, and that can help to keep some of those soil food web organisms happy. And some of it, I think, is the erosion control impact as well. When you're reducing erosion, you're giving more opportunity for that soil to build up. So some combination of those things. We know something about the mechanism of why, but more importantly, we know it does happen. <laughs> so even if we don't know all of why, it still certainly seems like a very good idea if you get the spacing right and everything else. Otherwise, you can really outcompete your crops. You have to get the spacing right and match the right tree species to the right species of companion crops and so on. Just like in an edible forest garden, you, you don't plant a blueberry under a dense planting of nut pines where there's no light because it's not going to be able to produce. So we want to try and use those same kinds of ideas of giving each plant the niche that it wants so that they can work together and, and make something happen. Is there a generally agreed upon minimum spacing between your rows or is that going to vary widely depending on what tree species you're using? It depends particularly on how much light you want to continue to have for your crops you're growing in the alleys over the course of the life of the trees. The general guideline is that if you want to be able to continue to grow crops all the way through the life of the trees, the spacing between your rows should be two or three times the mature height of the trees. So if the trees are going to be 50 feet tall when they grow up, then your rows should be 100 to 150 feet apart. If you want to continue to be able to grow crops all the way through to when when those trees are mature, but also it's perfectly fine to have closer spacings and just grow crops until it gets too shady and then switch to something more shade tolerant. And there's shade tolerant crops like you could shift to something like sweet potatoes or cotton or what a lot of people do is they grow hay. They'll grow forages like hay, which can handle quite a bit more more shade and is something that a large-scale conventional farmer is familiar with and has markets for selling hay. So that's what I have seen, I think, most often people switching to. 
from corn or, or whatever at the beginning towards forages as the trees get more mature, which can take quite a long time, it can take 10 or, or 12 years or more for that shift to start to happen. And then the benefit is that the annual crops provide income for those years while you're waiting for the trees to start to, whether they're making nuts or, or timber or whatever, you're waiting <laughs> until that money comes in. So it can help make your cash flow a little more reasonable. And also it's diversifying your farm. So if your annuals or your trees have a bad year, hopefully they won't both have a bad year and you'll still be able to have something to work with. So it is sort of a a risk management approach that can be attractive to some farmers to have more products to fall back on in case it's a, because it's always a weird year <laughs> these days and uh, you never know what's going to survive. So hedging your bets, it's a little agroforestry joke, hedging your bets can be a good way to spread out your risk across multiple different crops. As someone who's been in this world of conservation, agriculture, perennial crops, permaculture for decades now, in researching and putting together this book, was there anything that surprised you or stood out about alley cropping and its potential? Yeah, actually, I've been really shocked by how widespread it is becoming in France and how highly profitable it can be and how much more productive it can be than growing either trees or annuals on their own. I knew that in the tropics, it was really showing these incredibly great results, but I was really surprised by how well it does in temperate climates. And also, actually, I was really digging into the the benefits to soils and so on. I was surprised by how many there were. And it seems to me that one, I think, angle for getting farmers interested in it is the soil health angle. If you care about soil health, and so many farmers really do these days, there's very compelling evidence that incorporating tree rows in your fields is an extremely powerful tool for improving soil health, sort of at a chemical level, at a physical level, and at a soil biology kind of level. So that's all really, I was surprised, very pleasantly surprised by all of those things. And uh, I hadn't really taken a deep dive in it before. The, the other component of this book is that Megan Giroux, who runs Interlace Commons, is going to be traveling around and gathering stories from farms across Europe and around the United States and Canada as well to have a lot of robust case studies of farms of different scales and different numbers of years in alley cropping and so on to really show that farmer experience. Because while I'm, I write pretty good sometimes, but I have not practiced alley cropping in the kind of way these farmers are. So I can pull together book research, but it really needs to be leavened with that real hands-on experience from lots and lots of farmers in different kinds of temperate climates. So I'm really looking forward to seeing those as well. We've, we've drawn also on a number of examples from China. And during the 1970s and 80s, China was a real hotbed of temperate alley cropping as well where it was done on a very large scale. In fact, just Polonia trees alone in China during that period, the area in Polonia alley cropping in China was as large as Maryland. That's a really big <laughs> amount of land. And it wasn't that farmers stopped doing it because it wasn't working. It was that they all planted the same tree. And when they all matured at the same time, there wasn't much of a market for it. 
But in terms of producing well, in terms of restoring degraded land and all that, it was a really, a really big success. So that shows a little bit of how you need support at the policy level to make this happen. We need some money to help farmers implement these practices. And it is a practice that's paid for through the USDA EQIP programs. There is a mechanism in place to help people establish it. But also we need to assist farmers to find the markets for those products. That story reminded me a little bit of uh, like when everybody was supposed to plant Christmas trees and then they all matured at the same time and the price dropped really badly. <laughs> or there was the, the sort of emu stuff that happened and whatever we need to, if we as a society think it, it matters to us for water quality, for carbon sequestration and all the other good reasons that farmers adopt this kind of practice and whether that's alley cropping or silvopasture or any other kind of very desirable practice that has an establishment cost and makes the farmer wait a number of years until it starts to pay them back for their investment of their time and money. We need to make it worth their while and there are a number of ways that might happen, but we've been um, trying to explore what the different kinds of incentives are for farmers to implement this kind of practice it's great if it's good for soil health, but it has to be viable for the farmer as well. And there are, as I said, Equip directly pays people to do alley cropping in, in many states, but also more generally, there's tree and shrub plantings in all states through the USDA. There's incentives for that. And then there are a number of other USDA programs, and we're working on a big list of those. And then a number of other philanthropic routes and other kinds of routes people can find to get the financing for these kinds of practices, which are very exciting. I'm actively looking for land right now so I can do some alley cropping. It's really sold me very much on the practice working on the book. It sounds like as much as we may aspire towards a perennialized world designed with permaculture, the alley cropping provides a very functional way to move in that direction right now on a very broad scale that is applicable across a variety of contexts for farmers, whether they're in the global north, the global south, or anywhere else in the world. I sure think so. And, you know, we're not that many years off from perennial grains being more economically viable. Kernza is out there and people are making money on it, even though the yields are low. And as the perennial grains get better and better, then you might have rows of trees interspersed with rows of perennial grains. That's a really lovely perennial system right there. And there are people doing it, doing fully perennial versions of it now. But yeah, I, I don't know that we need to perennialize everything. Perennialization isn't the same as everything in the field being perennial, I guess, right? If we can move in that direction, it's great. And the more we can move in that direction, the better. And if we can ultimately go really far in that direction, that's fantastic. And for many soils in many fields... That is what we should do is they should be 100% perennial because they're highly erodible or, or for other kinds of reasons, you know. I don't really believe in one-size-fits-all recommendations because every farm is different and every field on every farm is different. But clearly, the more perennial we can get things, the better. And alley cropping is one really powerful tool to do that on commercial annual crop farms, which could use some some love and some additional practices, especially as climate change becomes more severe, climate change impacts become more severe. Thinking about that kind of practices getting really, really important, even in places where I think it wasn't necessarily before. 
And with the importance of this work, for anyone who's listening to our conversation today, would you have any suggestions or recommendations on how to start an alley cropping system or if they're already engaged in agriculture and growing food to begin that transition? Sure. Well, if you read French, there's a really fantastic book from Christian Duprat and Fabian Liagra. And my French pronunciation is terrible, but it's uh, Agroforesterier. It's from uh, a group called Agrof, A-G-R-O-O-F, who are the ones doing this great work in France. And that's really mostly about combining cereal grains with deciduous timber trees, but it's, it's really fantastic. Meanwhile, there's a wonderful guide from the University of Missouri Agroforestry Program, which has very much of what you would need to get started in alley cropping in the United States right now. It's sort of targeted toward the Midwest, but relevant much more broadly. And then the Savannah Institute also has been doing some great work developing trainings and training materials on various kinds of agroforestry, including alley cropping. So those would be a couple of the places that I would have people start. Where can folks connect and find you? Sure. One place to do that is I have the perennialsolutions.org website where I continue to post things on the blog. And I have a Patreon campaign. I think it's just Patreon slash Eric Tonsmeyer, where I'm posting new pieces of writing. And that's sort of my like hotspot right now. People, if they want to contribute to that, can get access to all kinds of sneak peeks and previews to things I'm working on and some stuff that I post only there. But also, that is a place where I'm announcing things about what I'm up to. Also, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and things like that as well. In the time that we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners when it comes to alley cropping? Yeah, I would say that in the same way that I think we've been thinking about, I think it needs to be part of what we think about when we talk about regenerative crop production. When you look at the like the definition of regenerative agriculture that's been put out by Gay Brown and been picked up by General Mills and USDA and everything, it does not mention trees at all. I happen to know that Gay Brown has a bunch of trees on his farm, but I think we've been missing that dimension of what crop production looks like, missing trees as an essential component of what good annual crop production looks like. And again, not not all kinds of trees and not all densities and not all spacings, but the right kinds of trees in the right place in the field can make a really big difference. And I think we just need to start imagining trees in those fields, be they widely spaced, you know, and they should be widely spaced in order to enable crop production to continue underneath. I think it needs to be part of our of our vision for what a regenerative annual cropping system looks like and part of our ongoing discussions and goal setting around that. And that was Eric Tonsmeyer. His book on alley cropping is out in late 2022 in partnership with Interlace Commons. Look for that work and learn more about alley cropping at interlacecommons.org. You can support Eric and his ongoing research at patreon.com slash ericktonsmeyer. In addition to the interview with Dr. Byrne Sweeney about stream restoration and riparian buffers that I mentioned during the interview, I've also included a conversation about the Savannah Institute in the resource section of the show notes. What I like about this conversation on alley cropping is that it already fits with the other strategies we have within permaculture, such as food forests, that lead directly to a technique. 
plant trees in rows with our already existing annual gardens or farm fields. If we want to intercrop long term, then plan the spacing for the rows to be two and a half to three times the height of the mature trees. By doing so, we stack functions not only in space, but also in time, which allow us to further implement incrementally as we adapt our gardens and farms as the canopy matures. Can you see using alley cropping on the land that you work? Do you find this to be another valuable tool in your permaculture kit? Let me know. Leave a comment for this episode at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Until the next time, spend each day caring for plants and sinking carbon into the ground while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>